Hi, family. Welcome back. This is Jacqueline, your host, and this is a Megapreneur podcast. If you're new here, this is a space where we feature women of color who are entrepreneurs and creatives. We focus on transformation from that place of feeling stuck to taking action on your dreams. Just wanted to remind you that if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and a comment as it helps the podcast get out there to more amazing women just like you. Today's guest is Andrea Santiso from Ishik Design. Side note, Ishik means win woman. Don't you love that? It's such a perfect metaphor for Andrea's journey. After being fired and having a freak out in her car, she realized she never wanted someone to have that power over her in her life again. So this sculptress turned jewelry designer created beautiful jewelry to not only be an extension of her art, but also to represent her heritage. Oh my God. I think that that's probably happened to a lot of people. Like I, I totally relate listening to your story and uh, like as soon as you asked me the question, I immediately thought about last February. Um, I, I think I have worked, I'm 31, going to be 32 years old in July. And I have started, I think I started working when I was 17, like going on 17. So that's a long work history. And in that work history, I have always had like amazing relationships with employers. I have always like, you know, they've like, they would love for me to come back, like amazing references, um, even when I leave. So this last February, February, 2018, I had transitioned out of working for a big museum in Los Angeles um, on the West side. And I had been offered a position much closer to home, a lot less traffic and at a really like respected university. And I worked there for, I'm going to say it was, it was five months and like 30, 29 days because going into the institution, I already felt that it was, it was an interesting place. Um, and I was, I'm from the art world, which is very, 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 very rich, very white, um, a lot of privilege. So, but I had never seen like academic privilege before until I started working at this university and quickly realized that this was like not the perfect fit. And it was confirmed on February, 2018 last year when I was super unceremoniously fired from this job. I had never been fired before, ever. I hadn't even had like a bad job review. So for me at like, you know, at the time I was 31, it felt like such a freaking failure. Like I just, it felt like a total rejection. It felt like, oh my God, it was awful. I don't think, oh my God. I, I just remember getting called into this office uh, like an hour before my day was over. And they basically told me that, I, that, that, that what I was doing was really the job for two people and that I wasn't keeping up. They understood that. And the thing was that if they didn't let me go then and there, then technically the next day I would be a permanent employee. So I would actually have more rights with the company so that HR was forcing them to fire me that way. Um, and I just remember sitting in my car, uh, they offered me this like really ridiculous, like, um, I think they, they told me that they would hire me through a temp agency, which basically like stripped me of all my benefits. It was really bad. So I said no. And I just remember sitting in my car after calling my sister and finally crying because I was like, I was not going to cry in front of these fools. And um, just being like, what the hell am I going to do? 
like, who am I? Like, I'm, I'm like a 30 year old person who just got fired from like a regular, like administrative job that I'm usually really amazing at. You know, I like graduated from one of the top art schools in the, in the country, maybe the world. And I just feel like if this isn't enough, like, I don't know what else I'm going to do. So that's probably the most, like, I can't, I can't even say rock bottom because that sounds super dramatic, but it just felt like I hit a giant glass window that I didn't know I was heading toward. And it was like a moment of total reassessment for sure. So talk to us about how you felt in that car and what was the catapult for you to take the next step into what you're doing now? Um, oh my God. So in my car, oh, it was so weird. It was like, I don't know. I can't, I can't really put it into words. I think I felt ridiculous. It was humiliating, like, I didn't get to say bye to anybody. And I, I was working for like a really big bio lab and like everyone loved me. So, and a lot of them are younger, you know, like these like young kids who I would kind of watch out for. So I think I felt like really like, I felt like this morning, like I wasn't going to be able to say bye to anybody. I didn't want to leave like on a bad note that way. Um, I felt really like rejected and confused because I, felt like I had really like gone above and beyond, you know, to, to the point of like answering to two 30 in the morning emails because someone made a mistake in the lab or doing things like that while setting my boundaries. So I think a lot of the, like in my mind, I was like, Whoa, you know, my type of personality doesn't fit into this world. Like having to tell your boss, like, Hey dude, like, please, like, can you wait until eight o'clock in the morning when I'm actually back on shift to, asking me to do like 50 things that aren't really my job description was not acceptable. So I felt really like conflicted about should I have done that? You know, maybe it was like, was like, was, was setting these boundaries, what got me fired. So like there was a lot of self doubt. Um, yeah. Like I felt really lost, which was crazy. Cause I have like a degree and amazing network connections. And I was just like, I just felt so awful. It was really weird, and I think it was mostly so conflicting for me because this was not in my field. It's a bio, it's a bio lab, um, doing really important, amazing work. But it wasn't like I lost a networking connection from my art, right? So, like, I think that that's why I was so confused as to like this intense like feeling of rejection that I was feeling while sitting in my jeep. Like, it was just like it was so bizarre. Like I was, a part of me was like, okay, it's a job. Like you can find another one. But at the same time, like since it had never happened to me, it was just really bewildering. And I felt like a deer in headlights. Um, but as for the moment that I think I, I kind of like, I, I just felt like someone poured a bucket of like, cold ice water on me was probably when I when I was on the phone with my sister and I'm just like freaking out, like, what am I going to do? Like, I was just like, I was, I was feeling so awful, you know, like my plan had been basically chucked out the window by these people and I had no control. And she asked me, she's like, well, what did they give you? She said, did, they, did they give you even like severance? Did they give you anything? And I was like, you know what they did? They gave me, like, they paid out all my hours. They gave me my final paycheck. And then they gave me a little bit extra, um, probably because they felt bad, you know? So she was like, okay, so what are you going to do? Like how much, how long can you, how long can you 
be okay with this, you know, like with what they've given you, like monetary wise. And, um, and I was like, you know what? I haven't even thought about that. Cause at the, I was just like terrified of having to like call my husband and be like, babe, all of our plans for the next two years are basically like chucked because of these people and this lab and like, and like this unfortunate, very unfortunate way of, you know, it was like this, like this next step I was forced to take without, without having any say. And I got home and I like laid out my checks that I had given, that they had given me, sat down, calculated how I would do, called my old job, like an old job at Cal State LA. That's amazing. I love that place. And of course, like my boss, my old boss was like, you can come back anytime. We got you. Take a couple of weeks. Um, do a little bit of working from home so you can like, you know, pad your income, like, you know, so it can be a little helpful for you. I did like some Photoshop work for them. And like, he gave me like a week and a half. I think I only took a week and a half. He gave me two weeks, but I like took a week and a half and I just sat down and like, was, was like, I need to start my own business. Like I never want to feel like this again. Mm -hmm. And from there, I just took a portion of what they get, like basically the extra, that little extra like bonus that they gave me when I left. I got online, did a bunch of research and found, um, just like, I started, I basically started my jewelry business that I had been meaning to start for forever. And that's kind of where I was at, at that point, just, you know, starting this little business. So it sounds like in that car, there was a lot of what transition like really talks about is mourning your identity and it's something that we don't do I think a lot of the time we define ourselves a lot of people do it with a job um, with mm -hmm. money right with a title but I think for a yeah. lot of us um, I think in particular maybe this is just coming up for me people of color is we really pride ourselves in the kind of work that we do right what yes. kind of characteristic like I'm a hard worker and that should be enough and Mm -hmm. And we don't really take into consideration that sometimes it's, it's more than that. It sounds like your boss was upset with your, with your boundaries, right? And they took oh, advantage yeah. of the whole situation to get rid of you before you became permanent and you had the right oh, to absolutely. say, hey, I'm worthy of boundaries, right? Um, and being yeah. in the car, it was like your mourning process and, okay, what is the next step? And it sounds like you were always connected to art. That was the biggest part of you, but you hadn't like, it sounds like not even like really owned it completely until you got this point of starting to make your jewelry. But your jewelry is more than just jewelry. It feels almost like it's a movement because it's not just pretty jewelry, right? It's not just like, there's always a meaning and a connection to where you're from, like your ancestors. And there's always, when I see you on Instagram, there's always a meaning behind it. It is more mm -hmm. than you're getting a pretty jewelry. It comes from someone who makes it with their own hands, right? It has art in it, but it also has meaning and background in it. So can you talk to us on deciding to start making the jewelry and even talk to us about pricing that and how that felt for you versus oh, having a regular job, like how that has been for you. Well, um, I still have a regular job. Mm -hmm. I work full-time at the Luckman at Cal State LA and I really love working there. Um, I've actually always been super involved in art. Like I haven't, I think ever since I graduated from Art Center, I, 
I had this fear. Everyone always talks about like, oh, when you graduate, everybody stops making art. It's too hard. It's too hard to keep up an art practice and have to have a real life. And a lot of the people that I think think that way are maybe people who didn't have to work while they were going to school. And I w- and unfortunately and fortunately, I did. I worked full time the whole time I was there and went to school full time. So it was rough. But um, I mean, the jewelry stems from that same practice. My art and sculpture practice, which is very deeply tied to the jewelry. Um, and actually a lot of the pieces, like a lot of my old sketches for big sculptures come from, you know, that they, trans- they translate into the jewelry, like earring pieces or necklace pieces or a lot of the pieces. So the way that I look at the jewelry business that I started is like as an extension of my art practice and my sculpture practice. The only difference that at the beginning I wanted to make super, super poignant and like not deviate from, which actually caused some friction while I was visiting some um, museum stores, was that the pricing had to absolutely be accessible. Like I didn't want anyone to like skip a, have to skip a bill to get something or like feel like they would never be able to own one of my pieces. Um, I already had that experience with a lot of friends who wanted some of my sculptures and they're big. They take a very long time. I make fiber art, um, a lot of textile work uh, using thread, silk, um, big loom like pieces. And those go for thousands of dollars. And I understand that that's like someone's rent. So the jewelry came in as a way of not only continuing my creative expression outlet, um, continuing my sculptural practice in like much more mini form, but also to highlight my heritage, my Central American heritage. That's the same thing that happens in my sculptural work while simultaneously making that work accessible and wearable. Um, So that like, that's where the pricing starts at, you know, like I started off, and you learn. I mean, I'm not a business major by any means. I, I didn't study it. Um, I did very, like, you know, like very, like, topical, like, kind of on the surface research when I started this little company. So when I, you know, when I started off, I wasn't paying myself for my, like, how long it was taking me to make the earrings and everything is, is handmade. So I would sell them for, like, $20, like, $25. And then little by little, I was like, wait, I'm not, this isn't actually, like, it's not profitable for me and it's actually not healthy like to be working so hard and not getting, having an income for myself. So once I started implementing like an hourly wage for myself, that's when I really started seeing my business thrive too. Um, I was able to, because with a little extra income, like you're able to promote, you're able to do a little more outreach. You're able to, you know, um, get some photos taken, like little things like that. And that small bump in um, pricing for the earrings that I think my rule is that I don't want to have anything in my shop that's over a hundred dollars. Um, and the $100 pieces are like these super, like it's like real gold, you know, um, freshwater pearl and like sapphire. They're like actually precious stones and like precious metals. So that's kind of where I'm at in terms of pricing, um, and the idea behind the, behind the brand, um, very much about like highlighting Central America highlighting Maya and Mesoamerican culture um, outside of like an anthropological museum setting, because that's always where we end up is these pieces are so beautiful. Look at all this rich history as if the Mayan, the Mayan community is this like long lost thing of the past when, especially in Central America, Guatemala specifically, 
you're walking next to people who are wearing their traditional dress that's been the same for the last 500 years. And they're still very much alive despite a huge wave of like a wave of civil war and persecution. So it's really important to me to put that forward that as Central Americans, Mayan descendants, um, and people of my, with Mayan ancestry, that it's not only like our responsibility um, and our right to protect and highlight this culture, but also to always, always make it known that it's not a thing of the past. It's not something that you just visit in, in anthropological museum spaces, you know? What do you want people to feel like or vibrate on when they, when they have an exchange with you and even when they wear your jewelry? Oh man, that's a little bit difficult to project. Um, I think my, my goal is to have a connection, to form connections, um, like cross-cultural connections, like, you know, like cross, like just like, I, I feel like intersectionality is so important, especially within the Latin American community, because we tend to be homogenized hmm. a lot. So, especially living in Los Angeles, like, people think I'm Mexican immediately because, duh, like, that's our nearest neighbor of Latin America. But also, um, that causes a lot of erasure, which is very, very difficult. It's difficult if you're of Central or, or South American descent because you feel like you're constantly being overshadowed or lumped in. Um, so, being, because we're being constantly feeling, like, you know, feeling overshadowed and or, or kind of lumped in and homogenized, it's really important to, to kind of just like establish spaces where it's just, it's space for just Central America, you know, like inclusivity is important, yes, but we barely have an identity as it is. So I really feel that in like, you know, wearing like a quetzal necklace and having someone ask you what it is and being able to like, you know, as like a Central American Guatemalan person be like, oh, this is our national bird. You know, we have all these like beautiful Mayan legends and mythologies around it or wearing like, the harpy eagle you're from panama or you know like like the mot mot and like you know like it's like there's so many beautiful it's like, like the bird of honduras like there's a tucan like the guacamaya like these beautiful little um like treasures that connect you like they connect you to your roots like they connect you to maybe where your parents are from where you're from where your grandparents came from and seeing people like come up to my booth when i'm doing during vending events and just have like so much um like acknowledging like this connection of like of Central Americanness because it's so small. Like we don't have a big big we have a giant community, but we don't have a lot of those connections happening on the daily. I I feel like that was my dream, and like it's becoming slowly a reality. Like th these like it's more accessible, it's more um, it's wearable, so you get to represent. You know, as opposed to having a sculpture piece on your wall that only visitors get to see, mm. and. There's, it's like, it's like a really amazing, just like connection through ancestral materials and like ancestral shapes even. So like, and those are the, th also the, that's also the feedback I've gotten from, from people who patronize the store mm. um, on Etsy and stuff like that. So talk to me about your roots and what, do, what that means to you as, as a woman now living in the U.S. and why that was, I mean, it's obviously important to us, right, when we talk about knowing our history and our ancestry, but no one really takes it as far as you've taken it. And, and seeing the pride and the, 
there's just this beautiful energy that is seen through even like Instagram when we see other people wearing your jewelry, like it's bigger than that. It's supporting you, it's supporting what you do. So what was that decision? Because it seems like your upbringing has always been to highlight that. So how has that been for you to now, you know, bring this dream to life? And why is that so important for you to continue to carry that? Oh, man. Um, I think, well, I feel that the reason it's so important, I think, is because I always, I, I grew up, from the time I was five years old, I was here in Los Angeles. You know, we landed, when I was one, we landed on Rampart, like, all, like pretty much, I'm sure a lot of other Central Americans um, slowly moved all around East LA, you know, like I moved around a lot in school and my community, like, you know, you, you're drawn to people who are familiar to you, have a f familiar language. And my community was primarily Mexican American people, always very welcoming and always very, like, I always feel, I always say Mexico adopted me. You know, like I live in Little Mexico and in Mexico adopted me. Um, so for me to grow up that way and mostly very like, like being very like objective and also very honest, it was a very positive experience for me. You know, like my madrina, like my first community madrina, like she comes from a Mexican family, um, my mom's best friends, like all of like, they're like my adopted tios and tias, all Mexican really for, for the most part. And, um, but I did always feel like I had to like always um, educate and not in a bad way, just, you know, oh, you know, like, like, what are you doing Guatemala for this day? Or like, how do you guys celebrate this? Or like, what's your national dish? We don't know anything about Guatemalan food. Little things like that, where I'm like, yeah, that's crazy. There's so many of us, but there's, our culture is just, it's not as prevalent. So being a part of a diaspora, not growing up in my homeland, which is, it's a privilege to grow up in the U.S., but also I always think about the artist Ana Mendieta. Um, she had to flee Cuba during the uh, takeover of the dictatorship. And her and her little sister, I mean, her older sister, I believe, they ended up in the States, too. And like she talks about how you're never whole. It's, it's the same way that people like, like mystics and, um, and like healers will talk about the other, your other half. Like that humans, you know, there's like this mythology that humans are like at one point, like we were, we had um, like eight arms and like four legs. And like at one point we were punished and like, you know, split into two and you're looking for your other half all the time. Right. Like very romantic. But I feel like that about Guatemala. Like, I feel like I was split in half when I came here. Like you, you're forced to assimilate, um, learn a new language, uh, kind of. Find, find the most familiar thing because you can always find what's, what's culturally yours. And that ended up being a Mexican American culture for us, you know? And so now as an adult, uh, it started with my art, really, really researching, looking back at my, at my, my personal history and connecting that with, you know, academic, like intellectual like books and um, research also just like, like techniques like weaving techniques and practices and food even like ingredients like these important ingredients there's um all these beautiful archaeological sites uh very like sacred spaces beautiful locations just like geographic locations like Hunalie and like samuk champe that when i was finally able to go back and connect like it there is nothing 
I know that this is my home. Like my husband is here. My, like my family is here, but I can't put into words what it felt like walking in streets that like my, I knew my great, great, great grandfathers had walked through and grandmothers, you know, Mm -hmm. um, having this concrete space where, you know, you took your first breath, like this land that's so connected to history and nature. There's volcanoes. We have jungles. We have forests. There's a Caribbean on one side. We have the Pacific Ocean on the other. Black sand beaches, white sand beaches, beautiful, um, like cenotes. We have underground rivers, like these, like some of the most impressive pyramids in the world. And so many people don't know about this. They see Guatemala as this developing country who was totally torn apart by civil war. Um, and I think that the most people know about are, like, are the huipiles that get resold by, you know, hipster festival attending girls on Etsy. So for me, it's super, super important to take ownership. To take ownership in a respectful way. Because I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm not a pure Mayan descendant. I have Mayan ancestry. So how can I, as like, as a a person that has both like, you know, European, because we were, you know, the conquistadores came and uh, European and Mayan ancestry respectfully, like not copy, not reappropriate or appropriate, um, but highlight, highlight respectfully my ancestry that is native and indigenous and, um, and kind of bring that up, you know, like bring it up into like, like hold it up and like into a place of pride and, and importance. I think that that's really, really like important for me as part of like how I I approach my culture. Mm. There's such a like respect and recognition in, in the words that you use. And also going back home and talking about that and, and in such a beautiful and poetic way. I like the fact that you brought up sacred spaces the podcast has now moved more, you know, this year I promised myself that I would move more into the feminine energy and our desires and also getting in touch with our childhood, right? Like our inner child and how that belief back then was a lot more broad, right? We had a lot more faith in ourselves and our capacity. And so when you talk about a sacred space and how that was for you when you went back home, you hear this being your home as well. Um, can you talk to us about how you build a sacred space for you whenever you have doubt, whenever you want to make sure that you're following your desires or you're going to, you know, that dark space or anything? Mm-hmm. How, would, how do you build that sacred space for yourself and also like, what would you tell someone else on how to get connected to the roots and have that sacred space here? Oh, wow. Um, I think I'm still learning how to do that. Uh, I, I tend to be a person that is very, I'm very flexible, but also have like, I'm like deeply loyal. Like my Nawal is Eek, which is how, one of, like how the company got its name Ishi, which means like wind woman. Um, and because Ish is a feminine pronoun. And I feel like despite, even just by naming something, something with like, with ancestral language, like that already created a sacred space for me. Like it, it really solidified like what this, 
what this brand is going to be. You know, the same way that I na- like a lot of my sculptures have both like Tachikel names and, um, and English names. It's really important for me to establish maybe not um, like, ide- like, uh, like metaphorical sacred space or even, or even um, like formal, you know, real life sacred spaces like altars, which are very important too. But just taking ownership of something and becoming, and, and becoming slowly knowledgeable about it, I feel like that creates sacred space for me. Um, having knowledge about about Mayan practices, ceremony, you know, like the like the indigenous people's flag, like representing like the four colors of the corn, and connecting that with you know reading a book about colors and like the history of all these colors, and you see the same exact principles being applied in Aboriginal Australia with the four colors of different, um, different pigments that are only found in this region. And it's kind of amazing. Like, I think maybe knowledge becomes my sacred space, mm-hmm. um, especially, and like, I get extra, extra excited when I find connections between like, you know, women made like matriarchally led societies or characters in history that, that also encompass all these different ideologies that I'm starting to connect and find like these little bits of information that for me is just like gold, you know, like I, I get so excited because there's so history is, is not written by women. History is most, mostly written by European white males and we get left out a lot. Like not only are we women already like, you know, um, second class citizens, but also being women of color, like as privileged as we are for being light-skinned women of color, we still, we still definitely do uh, get pushed aside. So I think like sacred space for me is highlighting my culture, highlighting different knowledge, aspects of knowledge that I find, um, bringing that into my different art practices and then using that privilege of being a light-skinned Latina that speaks English, that now has her papers to help bring awareness to like you know, the indigenous communities of Guatemala, like Mayan Health Alliance, like this incredible group that I'm actually like waiting on at the end of this month to donate through the Birds of Central America sales that I have. Like I donate like, 50% of all the sales to, um, to some sort of Mayan organization helping communities up there. And like they offer healthcare for uh, Mayan communities in Mayan languages, so like Kachikel, Quiche, Sutsuhil, and Mam, because a lot of times people will be sick and die because they can't communicate in Spanish to providers in the city or in like, you know, other clinics where they only speak maybe a little English and Spanish. Mm -hmm. So if you can't communicate that, you know, your side hurts because it might be your appendix, like, and it looks like maybe you have a stomachache, they check you, like, oh, it's like they send you home with antacids because they don't speak Kachikel. That's crazy to me. And I, there's organizations like Mayan Health Alliance and, you know, there's, there's so many, there's so many different places that are helping and really highlighting Mayan culture. Um, and for me, you know, that's another sacred space. I can give a little bit of my proceeds, something, you know, like to help and keep an organization like that going. So I guess that that's, that's where I'm at. I'm learning. I'm still learning how to do that for myself, but that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> What does it mean to you to be connected to your feminine energy? Oh, I think being connected to my feminine energy, you know, I, I don't know. 
I, I've never felt especially feminine. <laughs> Growing up, I was a total tomboy. Uh, I don't know if, def- if feeling feminine is that important for me. I think that maybe my, like, my, like, my eyes on the prize are, is really more just like, like feeling like just self-fulfillment maybe. Like a little, like setting small goals and as like this person that I am and like in this body that I inhabit, uh, making those goals happen, I think that's really like where I find strength. And I know that I'm like a feminine, fem, a female identifying person, um, but at the same time, I'm not, I don't know, like I think that maybe that's a privilege that I don't have to think about it very often. But I do acknowledge that, like, when I, when I pray in my own way, like, I'm an, an agnostic person. I do believe in, like, something bigger than us that's, like, this energy force that keeps us alive. And, but at the same time, like, when I think back or, like, when I need help, like, I always look to, like, my female ancestors. So I think that maybe, like, that's where I get my feminine energy from is from like these women that I know have held so much knowledge that are now like somewhere else. And how can we serve you? Like, how can we continue to support you? Oh my goodness. Um, if you are interested in purchasing jewelry, that is always very nice. Um, you know, sharing, sharing the posts is very helpful. Um, I don't know, reach out. I love hearing from people who have questions or, um, are interested in doing something custom for themselves or just hearing different people's stories. I get so many more messages from people through the, through the earrings and jewelry page than I ever did with my sculpture practice, probably because it's less pretentious. <laughs> so fine, artists can, fine art can be really annoying. So <laughs> I totally get that. But, and I really appreciate it, which I feel so grateful for. But please, please send me a message. I love DMs. Um, yeah, that, that would make my day. So my name is Andrea Sofia Santiso. I am the owner and designer of Ishik Designs, as well as a sculptor. Um, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is Ishik underscore designs. And Ishik is I-X-I-Q. That's, and then underscore and the word designs. Um, I also have my personal page uh, that is connected to the Ishik Designs. So please feel free to DM me and I will be happy to send that along too if you're interested in my sculpture practice. Um, and I also have an Etsy store that has a, once you just follow me on Instagram, there's a link in my bio to how to get to that.